Good morning, good morning. How is everybody today? Good. It's so good to have you with us here at the Grove. If this is your first time, or maybe first time back in a while, I want to welcome you again to the Grove. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are wrapping up a uh, sermon series we've been in for two months now on the book of Acts. And what I want to do this morning uh, with just a little bit of time that we have before we get to celebrate communion together is look at how the book of Acts ends. Because I think when we look at how the book of Acts ends, I think it uh, will reveal some things that I think are relevant for us. You see, the last eight or nine weeks, we've been preaching through this book, not just as a history lesson, um, but as a reminder that what was true then is still true today. Because uh, there's one version of how all of this goes where church is a place that you attend. It's like a country club membership, so to speak. And so, you know, you, you pay your dues, so to speak, and you show up and sometimes you use the golf course or the tennis facilities or, you know, you go and you have your meals there. Uh, and you attend or you are a part of it as it fits your lifestyle and as it fits your schedule. And your identity isn't really defined, well, sometimes it is, but your identity isn't always defined by what club that you're a part of. And then there's another version of how this goes, which is why we've looked at the book of Acts, because it, be, it informs your identity. It doesn't become a place that you attend, but it becomes who you are, who we are as a people. And that's always been the hope here, is that church would be something that we become, that we live into, an identity that we take on, and then we live out in the world, which is why every week we end our service in the same way. The church is not the building, the church is not the service, but the church is us living our faith out in the world. We say this over and over and over again because uh, what we know is sometimes we're slow to learn, and so we have to repeat things. And so we want to repeat things that we feel are most important here, which is why we've been in Acts for nine weeks, and it feels like maybe you've heard the same sermon eight and a half times, which in a way you have, and that's, that's not unintentional. Um, but what I want to look at today is how Acts ends, because I think the way Acts ends informs one of the characteristics, one of the aspects of what it means to be a church that I hope that we will commit to. You see, Ali talked about how in the month of November we're focusing on this idea of commitment, and that's true. But it's not just uh, to incentivize or to encourage and, and kind of persuade you to commit to generosity here at the church. Although we hope that that happens, because we believe in what we do here. We believe in the mission of the church. Um, but more than that, there are other things in addition that we hope that we will all commit to, that are hallmarks of, that are watermarks of, characteristics of the very first group of Christians, the very first church. And so I want to look at that today. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 28. And for everybody else, you can pull out your phone or I uh, will read it to you. This is just two short verses, but this is the way that the book of Acts ends. Now, kind of the last half of the book of Acts is about this man named Paul and all of the places that he goes spreading the message of the gospel, teaching and telling people about Jesus Christ. And at this point, Paul has finally made his way to Rome to stand before the emperor. Um, but while he is waiting to go before the emperor, he is under house arrest. And this is how, this is how Acts ends. 
Acts chapter 28, verse 30. It says, sometimes my clicker doesn't work, so we appreciate that suspense. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. One more time. For two whole years, Paul was under house arrest. He had an anklet. He was monitored 50 feet from the perimeter of his house. He stayed there in his house that he rented, and he welcomed everybody who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now here's what I think is fascinating about this passage. That's how the story of the first church ends. It doesn't talk about the ways that they begin to organize. It doesn't talk about the systems and processes that they adopted to cultivate and to train leaders. It didn't talk about how they formed a charter and then invited people into membership. It doesn't talk about any of those things. At this point, as best we can tell, Maybe 10,000 people were Christians at this time in the world. Fast forward to today, 2,000 or so years later, and 2 billion people are Christians. How do you make that jump? How do you make that leap from a couple of thousand people to arguably the largest religion in the world? There's something that I think is interesting about the way it ends because... The story of the first church ends in a home. Now for us today, we kind of take it for granted that the church grew and multiplied and spread and now it is what we know today, where it kind of dominates culture in many ways, shape, or form, at least a tenet of or aspects of or some lingering remnant of Christianity dominates our culture, at least here in America. But that wasn't always the case. You see, at the very beginning, as the book of Acts ends, the church finds itself located in and based out of a home. I want to look at one other translation of this passage that I think uh, helps reveal some things. This is out of the message translation. It says that Paul lived for two years in his rented house. He welcomed everyone who came to visit. He urgently presented all matters of the kingdom of God, and he explained everything about Jesus Christ. And this way it ends. It says the last... The last verse in the book of Acts, in this translation, says, and his door was always open. The very first church was rooted in and centered in the home. There was no kind of communal place where they would gather, where they would show up to church like this, like we do now. It was based around a home, and in particular, it was based around a table. The very nature of the Christian faith at its very origin that we receive from Jesus, the last thing Jesus does with his disciples is he shares a meal with them. The basis of Paul's ministry in the last two years of recorded history of the early church is Paul receives people into his home. There's something inherent in the way that Christianity was founded out of this idea of this kind of family dinner, this family meal, this way of welcoming people into your home that allowed it to transform the entire world. What I think is so interesting is uh, as you kind of, kind of follow the evolution of the Christian faith, you can categorize the evolution and shift in the Christian faith 
uh, based on four phases of architecture. So the very first phase in the Christian journey of the story of faith was based around a table, based in individual homes. People would gather together. As you read through the rest of the New Testament, many of it is Paul's letters to churches that he started and founded. What you'll see time and time again is him describing these groups of people who have started these churches in their very homes. And so he names people and he talks about the community that's gathered in their home. You see this over and over again in the New Testament. This is what we see happening with the way that the church began to evolve and spread. And then kind of in the fourth century, Christianity has grown to such a force, to such a movement that it becomes adopted as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And as Rome adopts Christianity as the basis of its kind of faith, what you see is it lets go of kind of this pagan worship to all of these different gods, which vacates all of these temples to which these gods were worshipped in. And so as the Christian faith grew and multiplied, they start to take over some of these abandoned temples. And what we see happen is as they move into these temples, the center of the Christian faith is no longer a table and a home, but it moves and evolves into an altar in the middle of these temples. And this happens over the next thousand years. And what you see is uh, once they needed larger temples to build, to gather people into, you see the building of what we call cathedrals. And this is kind of the second phase in the Christian story where the center of this architectural shift is based on this altar. And so if you look at like the photo of some of these classic cathedrals like Notre Dame, it's built in the shape of a cross. And in the center of the cross is the nave, and in the center of the nave is the altar. And so what started out as a meal among friends, among family, moves to kind of this kind of experience that's a little mystical. The language is hard to understand because it's said in Latin, but nobody spoke Latin anymore. And so there's a little bit of kind of mystery and you know, unfamiliarity with it, but it was based around not an extended meal, but a brief moment around a piece of bread and a sip of wine. And then over time with kind of the rise of the Protestantism and the Enlightenment period, what you see is another shift in architecture in the Christian faith. And it moves from some of these classic churches where there's this barrier between the people and the experience, you know, with the rise of the printing press and so forth. There was only one place that people could gather to hear scripture read out loud. And that was the church. And they start, so they started to design new buildings, which focused the center of the Christian faith, not around the table, not around the altar, but around a pulpit. In this climate of information and enlightenment, people wanted to hear, they wanted to learn, they wanted to know. And so you started to see church, uh, Christianity start to build these buildings that were now in the shape of a rectangle with an elevated pulpit. This is what you see. This is a photo out of a, a church in England that actually the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, uh, they, this is kind of where Methodism gets its start in Bristol, England. And so what you can see there in the background is this elevated pulpit where you have to climb all of these steps. I've actually been there and it's just a square box with an elevated stand where the minister would stand and read scripture and then interpret the scripture for the group of people. And so you see this shift away from a meal, away from a sacrament, towards listening to scripture and hearing and receiving information. 
And then in the early 1900s, as uh, we see the rise of urbanization and people moving into city centers uh, with the rise of kind of radio and television and movies, all of these forms of entertainment, uh, we needed places for people to go and to experience uh, different things collectively. You see this rise in these theaters where there would be live performances or there would be movies shown. And what you see happen is the church begins to shift and evolve for the fourth time. So it goes from a table in a home to an altar in a cathedral to a pulpit in kind of this colonial period to now where we are today where you see a stage with a group of chairs you know, displayed around this stage. This kind of coincides with the, with the rise in the popularity of music just in this social kind of sphere. But what I fear has happened as Christianity has continued to evolve and to shift from one style of architecture to the next is there is an aspect, a characteristic, a quality of the Christian faith that we've lost. And I, a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that was central in the very beginning that we need to reclaim today. There is this passage from kind of the first, you know, second century, this early church father named Tertullian, and he's writing about the prominence of this Christian meal. And this is, this is what he says about it. He says, our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. So what it was called in English translation would be a love feast. Very 60s, you know, is this love feast. And so whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participants, before reclining, taste first of prayer to God. As much as eaten has satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much as drunk befits the chaste. And so what you see is the church became the central hub for taking in those who were disconnected from families, widows, orphans, immigrants. The church became the place where people were brought into this new family, this larger family based in our equal identity as children of God. And their needs were attended to. The meal was not just a bite of bread and a sip of wine. It was a full-on feast to provide for the needs of those who were attending. And then it says after, each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. Could you imagine how how quickly y'all would go find a new church if we did this? (laughs) After after we celebrated communion this morning, if I was like, all right, yes, please stand. Is this going to be one that you've written yourself or is this going to be maybe from, from Hillsong or from Bethel, from somebody like that? Okay. And then we just take turns singing. And we'd close the doors next week. We wouldn't even need to have Commitment Sunday, would we? But this is what they did. They would take turns sharing, participating. And as the feast com- commended with prayer, so with prayer, it is closed. Now, what I think is often lost about the origins of the Christian faith is this characteristic and commitment to community. Uh, communion. It's this word, this idea that's based in Latin. And the first is cum, which means together, to do together. And then the second is panis, which means bread. So this idea of companion or community 
or communion would be those who you broke bread with together. This is the core of kind of what it means, one of the characteristics of the Christian faith was this commitment to community. And we've talked in previous weeks about kind of the similarity that this holds to kind of family meals. You can see that with the increase in family meals in a home, you see the increase in the wealth and the stability and the health of children and families. And as families are the foundational building block of society, there is this direct connection to societies in which there is a commitment to family meals and societies in which there is the absence of that same commitment. And so I wonder for us as a people, given the cultural climate that we find ourselves in in this moment, both here in Dallas and our pocket of Dallas and in the larger world, what would it look like if we were the type of church that renewed our commitment to family meals? Now, not the, just in the literal sense where we would gather together and to share meals together, but including that. What would it look like if we were the type of family that committed that no matter what was happening in our life, we prioritized gathering together? We took time out, even though there were lots of other places that we could be, there were lots of other good things going on in our schedule that we could lend ourselves to and spend our time doing. What if we were the type of church that said, we're going to do it differently? My guess is, you know people in your life, you have friends who their family has a commitment to family meals. It is inconvenient. They have to say no to other things because of the priority that they give to family meals. My hope would, would be that we would be that kind of church, that we would say, you know what? Yes, it is hard to get the kids to church on Sunday mornings. Yes, we have other commitments that we have made that we might need to reevaluate, like extra you know, curricular activities, like sports. And I know how that sounds coming from the guy who wants you to be in church. I was also the kid who grew up playing soccer and would miss church, and so I understand both sides of it. See, here's what I think is happening in our world, is we are acquiescing to the norms of the culture around us. And I think in many ways it's at our own detriment. Christianity has always thrived when it has stood in opposition to the dominant culture of its time. I think it is time for us as a church to recommit to some of these characteristics, to stand in opposition to the norms of culture around us. Now, this does not kind of mean like some return to some, you know, kind of ancient Puritanism or whatnot, but I do think there are some really important values and characteristics that I see as I read the book of Acts that I think we as a church would benefit from if we recommitted to. One of them is this idea of community, of family meals, because here's what happens when you commit to family meals. You're able to kind of combat the rampant individualism that I see happening in our world. Do you know that 70 years ago, the average family meal time was an hour and a half? Does anybody have an idea what it is today? It's 12 minutes. And oftentimes, over 50% of those are in the presence of a screen or a television. If that's happening in our homes, what's happening in our churches? What would it look like if we were a church who recommitted, said, yes, when I look around me and I see a culture where everyone else is spending their Sundays other places, what would it look like if we were a church that said, no, on Sundays we gather together. 
it's family dinner, and you don't miss family dinner. Here's what would happen. We'd be able to take care of each other better. We'd be able to be aware of the needs of those who are present. It is really hard for us to do a quick visual scan, of Allie and I to do a visual scan of who here, who's here on Sunday mornings, and then make mental notes and then follow up with all of the people who aren't here that we re- remember who aren't here. Does that make sense? It's like, okay, we see you, we see you, we see you. If you don't come for three weeks and you don't let us know, it's hard for us to know. That's not what we want. This past week I was in the hospital visiting one of our members. 92, just had back surgery, and I'm, as I'm walking the halls of the, church, of the hospital, I walk by these rooms, and I look in, in almost every single room, there is a person laying on a bed all by themselves. And I thought to myself, I'm like, who do they have? Who's coming to visit them? Who's thinking of them? Who's holding them up in prayer? Who's caring for their family while they're laying in this bed? The reason that we have to recommit to these family meals of gathering together is because when we're in relationship with one another on a regular basis, we can actually take care of one another. We had another incident with one of our families here in the church over the last 48 hours, and I heard about it from four different people, not including the family. That's a family who's insulated, who's surrounded by people who care about them, who know what's happening in their lives. We need this as people. We need this as a community. We have to recommit to this value of gathering together because that's what it means to be a family. And that's the primary way that Jesus talked to his followers. Over 300 times in the, in the Gospels, Jesus refers to his followers as brothers and sisters. In the King James translation, he calls them brethren. That's Jesus' primary understanding of what it meant to be a follower. We were family, brothers and sisters, and we took care of each other. We made family dinners a priority, and we showed up, and we gathered. And so, of several things that I think are key to what it means to be the church, the one that I hope that we can begin to recommit to is to making church a priority, not just to fill the seats, but it's because when we come into this place, just like in a family meal, you can be reminded of the values that are central to this family. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like in your day-to-day life. What's going on? How can we help you? What are the struggles? Where are the ways that you know, life has been hard this week? Joys and concerns, you know, highs and lows, all of the things that you talk about in family, family meals whether it's with your actual family or your friends who have become family. We have that opportunity, but only when we gather together. It's a reminder of how we're supposed to live different, how we're supposed to look different. No, we don't do that in this family. No, we make different choices. I think it's far too easy to just kind of go with the tides and the winds of culture. And I think it's time for us as a church to start to look different. Jesus called his church a city on a hill. The people would look and see the way that they lived their life and they would be drawn to God because of it. Looking out at each of you, you are all people of influence in your immediate circles and in the larger city. 
if we can get this right, if we can recommit to gathering, to be reminded of what it means to be a church, to be followers of Jesus out in the world, not just in this building, the shifts that we can make will turn this city upside down. I don't want us just to be a place where we come and attend, but I want it to be who we are, the way that we live it out in the world. And so as we celebrate communion here in a, in a moment, it's just a reminder of the importance of what it means to gather together, to break bread with one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, and to recommit to a value system, to a code of living together. Because we're a family. And together we can do this. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, you have called us yours. You have called us brothers and sisters. God, let us recommit to one another, recommit to you, of gathering together, of prioritizing our family meals, and of strengthening each other in the example of you. God, as we prepare to receive this meal together, God, let it serve as nurturing, as strengthening, as encouraging for us to live the Christian life out in the world. Because it's there that you've called us to be your church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.